In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, now, we are going to start a new book, uh, God willing, 2 Corinthians. We had studied 1 Corinthians before, um, and uh, 2 Corinthians is written uh, um, a few months after the first book, and it was written in the year around 57 AD, and it was written by St. Paul to the Corinthians from Macedonia. So he was in Macedonia, and he is writing to um, the Corinthians, and we see in this epistle, St. Paul is expressing his love for the people, right? Um, his first, uh, his first uh, epistle was filled with a lot of different rebukes for different things, like the people were doing a lot of things wrong, and he mentions um, those things again uh, here in this epistle. But the tone of this epistle is much uh, softer, much more gentle. Um, the focus is on like the triumphant mystery, uh, ministry and the pastoral care that he is giving um, to the people, okay? What are some of the main uh, themes? One theme is uh, defending his apostleship. So as in 1 Corinthians also, there were some Jews who had come from Jerusalem uh, to Corinth and began to create doubt among the people about the apostleship of St. Paul, like beginning to, to cause rumors about him. You know, he was the only apostle who was not appointed an apostle during the life of Jesus Christ. He became an apostle after the resurrection, right? And so he was not one of those who was seen with the rest of the 72 apostles from the beginning, right? He was he became an apostle later on. Um, the people were also claiming that he sounds very aggressive and forceful in his epistles, but when he comes in person, he is very weak. Like his physical presence is not like very extraordinary. Um, it's it's kind of weak. Um, and some of the Corinthians began to deny his authority, right? And like 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 in First Corinthians as well. So St. Paul found it necessary to always having to be what? Defending his apostleship, right? Defending his apostleship. And and he's doing this out of out of love. Like he's not doing it because he wants to be like he wants people to see him better. He's doing it because he wants the people to believe the message that he is preaching. Like he is preaching a message of salvation. So if I'm coming with a message of salvation, I want you to listen. I want you to see that my words are authoritative. Not because I want to attract attention to myself, but because I want you to believe and act on the message that I'm saying. One of the most uh, beautiful verses in the Bible related to pastoral care um, is, is in this uh, epistle in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 15. Uh, it says what, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Like it's a very heartfelt like petition. Like St. Paul is saying, like, like I will gladly spend everything I have on you and be spent. Like not just I'm going to give you of my resources, I'm going to give you of myself. I'm going to give you of myself in abundance until there is nothing left. Like St. Paul is literally killing himself in his service, right? And then even though he is loving them to that extent, what type of love is the, are they returning to him? Very little, right? It's kind of a, it's a very heartfelt and, and sad kind of um, truth that he was declaring to them. Another theme in 2 Corinthians is that he was expressing joy over their repentance. Um, he was told by Titus that his first epistle had a positive response. So when he wrote to them about a lot of the problems that were happening in the Corinthian church, 
um, he had heard that there was a lot of improvement. There was a lot of growth that had happened. And so he was, he was overjoyed because of their repentance. And so he's writing to confirm to them the joy that he had. Like he didn't want to just send messages of rebuke um, again and again. He wanted to express his joy and his appreciation and, and his delight that they were turning from sin and accepting the words that he said. And he expresses this, um, uh, you know, that many of the issues he spoke about specifically had been addressed. Um, How many chapters are there? Uh, I don't remember now. Someone can look it up. Um, one of the people that he had mentioned specifically in the first epistle had been a man who had been caught in sexual immorality and no one had rebuked him. Uh, no one had uh, addressed the issue at all. They kind of like, some people say he was like a person of high rank in the church of Corinth. And so uh, the people were like, you know, just looking the other way and, and, and just accepting this uh, sexual immorality that this person was, was committing. And St. Paul took this very seriously in 1 Corinthians. And he actually uh, commanded that this person be excommunicated um, the way it's written in First Corinthians is be delivered to Satan. Okay, delivered to Satan means going to be like uh, ejected from the church for a time. And this uh, ejection from the church, this excommunication was not out of hatred. It was not out of anger. It was not uh, to destroy this person, but it was to make that person feel that what they had done was a sin and in order for them to repent and come back. And so that person did indeed come back again to the church and repented of their sin. So he mentions this um, situation as well on the epistle as part of expressing his joy for what had had happened. Um, also, he thanks them uh, because of their care for the persecuted Christians. So there were, you know, the out of all the places in the world, the place where there was the greatest persecution at this time was in Jerusalem, because that was where the Jews were, and they were the ones doing the persecuting. All the Christians that had left and gone to the diaspora, like in the other areas, there was less persecution. So the, the, the Christians that were in Jerusalem always needed like the most care. And they would collect money from the other churches in order to send it to help those Christians who are living in persecution in Jerusalem. Um, what are some of the issues that are addressed? So uh, he addresses um, a lot of the similar things. He speaks about spiritual gifts which is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians. He speaks about the resurrection of the dead. He speaks about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. Um, he speaks about giving uh, and, and exhorting the people to give in abundance. And he speaks a lot about love as well, like loving one another. And he warns against heresies um, and contentions. One of the issues as well that was in the first epistle, where there was these different factions and groups in the church, and they were quarreling and fighting um, with one another. And he speaks about the comfort of God uh, to the church and to the people. Um, finally, he, um, he makes an apology to them because he had promised them in 1 Corinthians they would come back and visit them in person, but he wasn't able to do so. And so he, he, he makes an apology asking for them to forgive him. Okay. Um, okay, let's just start in the first chapter. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. This is the apostolic blessing. Uh, as we had said before, every single epistle of St. Paul 
it starts with this, except for which one? Hebrews. Hebrews, right? Hebrews is the only one that doesn't start with the word Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's starting with this apostolic greeting, um, identifying who he is, okay? Um, and he also uh, is greeting on behalf as well of Timothy, okay? Timothy, St. Timothy, who was um, a partner in the ministry um, of St. Paul. Um, and even though Timothy was much younger than him and his disciple, but he says that he is our brother, like he makes him um, of equal rank um, as him. And so he emphasizes what his apostleship, because he wants the people to identify that he is, in fact, an apostle. He is addressing all the saints in Achaia. Achaia is like the whole region, right? Not just the city of Corinth, but the whole the whole region. And he, he says what that they are saints, right? He, he refers to them as saints by the grace of God. Doesn't mean that everybody he's writing to, there is no problems and there's no sin and there's nothing. I mean, he's, he, as he has addressed and he will continue to address problems that are in the church. So when he calls them saints, he is not saying that you are without flaw and that you are perfect already. Okay, But the, the term saint is speaking about who we are in the Lord and who we are in the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That we are called to, to be saints, that we are called to live blameless. We are called to live without blemish. We are called to live to a certain standard. And as long as we identify that we are called, that our identity is that we are called to live by such a standard, then we will continue to grow toward that standard, right? Even if we are very, very far away. Like you look at someone like St. Moses the Strong. St. Moses the Strong started very, very far away from the standard, right? But through his diligence, through his hard work, through his repentance, through his prayer, through his fasting, through everything that he did, his seriousness of wanting to grow closer to God and to put away his sinful lifestyle, he grew to become what we now call as a saint, right? Here, the, the idea of sainthood is that we are all called for this level of holiness. We're all called to be righteous. We're all called to work this way that our lives are categorized by, by the sense of of, 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 pi of piety, of reverence, of holiness, of, of morality, of goodness, that we live according to the commands of God. He is not looking at them through the lens of their failures. He is looking at them through the lens of their potential, right? And that's very important because sometimes we look at we look at things in a very negative way. We see something maybe that's not working quite right. We see some problems in it and we focus so much on those problems and we forget that there are so many things that are good. There's so many things that are working right. You know, like say if you have a married couple that is having problems, right? They're having conflict, right? Sometimes they focus so much on the conflict that they have that they forget to look at all the things that they do not conflict on all the things that they are in harmony about, all the things they agree on, all the things that is working right in their marriage, all the, the reasons that they respect each other apart from those issues maybe that they don't see eye to eye on. When we look at something with a spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit of like positivity, right? We can find so much good and we can instill like uh, a desire in those people to grow more. Right. And St. Paul was always good at this. Like he always made the people feel and to bring to their mind. What is it that they're doing well? Right. What is it that they're doing well? Even in the um, in the book of Revelation, uh, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Christ is speaking to the seven churches. OK, these seven churches in Asia Minor and these churches, um, each church, there was something that were rebuked on. Each church, there was something that they were doing wrong, and Christ re rebuked them. But also, before the rebuke, there was something good. He would always bring to mind, what is it that you're doing good, and what is it that you need to improve or to change, right? 
God is a fair judge, and we also need to be fair in the way that we look at things and to motivate and to lift people up instead of only focusing on the negative, just as St. Paul here is doing. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is reminding them, why is it that I am serving you? Like, why is it that I'm an apostle? Why is it that I'm writing these letters? Why is it that I come to visit you? Why am I talking to you at all? I'm not talking to you because I have some kind of influence on you or because of some kind of control over you or, or because, you know, um, I'm an authority figure, right? I'm talking to you because my love for you, my pastoral care towards you is rooted in uh, the pastoral care of God. God's love is what is manifested in me. Like when, for those of us who like serve in Sunday school, the love that we have toward those whom we serve or to anyone even if outside of sunday school anyone that we are serving right the love that we have toward them is a love that is rooted in the love of god that when i experience the love of god i share that love even subconsciously with those around me it is just kind of overflows onto those people around me this is the source of my service okay we are not serving ourselves we're not seeking anything for ourselves but we are fulfilling the calling of god to spread the kingdom of God, not to spread my own philosophy. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Okay, he starts out with this blessing, right? He starts this this apostle like he greets them. He says, uh, "Grace and peace to you." Okay, blessed be God the Father. Right, the very first thing is a blessing to God. God is the one who is allowed us to be have a relationship. God is the one who allowed me to be an apostle and allowed you to be my flock that we are communicating in love, right? Blessed be God. God is the father of mercy who comforts, right? Who comforts us even in our deepest trouble. Um, God is uh, a servant God. God is one who has given himself for us. All of these qualities are things that just as Christ has done, we also do like him, right? In Psalm 103.10, it says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities, right? This is the mercy of God, the, the, the father of mercy and the God of all comfort. And sometimes, you know, we, we ask this question of God being a source of comfort because we see that in the world, there is a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of anxiety, both for the Christian and for the non-Christian everywhere like the book of ecclesiastes says what the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked right it's not that because uh you know the the people of god because they're the children of god that somehow they're exempt from suffering no actually sometimes they experience a kind of suffering that even nobody else experiences so in what way do we say that he is the god of all comfort how is he comforting okay why does god allow us to endure suffering right god reminds us of our need for him Right? We are living in a world that, that exemplifies and amplifies the, the self-reliance, right? The idea that we are always relying on ourselves and that we are in need of nothing. And so the more that mindset seeps into us, the more we begin to forget about God, right? Because I begin to feel like, of what need do I have of him? Right? Of what need do I have? I have my body, I have my house, I have my things, I have my job, I have all the things that I have. Of what need do I have? Right? And so if we begin to forget, which we all forget in various, in various ways and various times, God needs to remind us. He needs to kind of remind us of, of that we are actually made of dust. We, we think that we are strong. We think that we are powerful. 
We think that we can stand upright and that we can think. But the only reason we have those things is because God gave them to us. We are not alive in and of ourselves. We are alive because God sustains our life, because God is the one who gave us life, right? When we experience suffering, we remember our weakness. We remember that we need him. When we experience suffering, it causes us to, 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 to increase our faith because it's like we are reminding ourselves, God is with us. God is with us. Even though I cannot see, God is with us. God will turn the situation that I'm experiencing into something good. It allows us to learn patience, right? I want something now, but I can't receive it now. And maybe there's a reason why I can't receive it now. I have to learn to wait, right? When we learn to seek comfort from God, instead of seeking comfort from any other source, this is a great lesson for any believer to learn. In the book of Jeremiah, God rebukes the people because instead of seeking comfort from him, they seek comfort from broken cisterns. You know, if you're familiar with this example, like he said, I am like the, the like I'm like the cistern, like it's like a pot of water and, and it's whole, right? It can hold water. But instead of people going to drink from this cistern that can hold water, they go and they drink from these broken cisterns that can hold no water, that are all full of holes, that when you begin to pour water in them, the water all falls out and you can't drink from it. So he's saying the people are like, when they are thirsty, instead of coming to God, who is the fountain of living water, they are going to these broken cisterns and trying to drink from them, and all the water is falling out and they can't drink. But repeatedly and insistently, we go to these broken cisterns, we go to addictions, we go to other things that we try to cope with the anxiety and the stress of life, as opposed to him who is the fountain of living water, right? He is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. We should always remember he is reminding them, St. Paul is reminding them of this at the very beginning here of the epistle. Yeah. So, I, so let me answer that in two ways. Okay, the first I will say is, when we say that God allows suffering, it doesn't mean that God is the source of suffering. It doesn't mean that God is the one who actively wants us to suffer. The world is full of suffering. So God, just like we said with the, with the idea of Joseph, right? Joseph suffered because his brothers did all these wicked things to him. Okay, but through the wicked things that they did to him, Joseph benefited and though indeed the whole world benefited, right? So God allowed Joseph suffering for a greater purpose, right? So in that sense, when we say God allows suffering, he is not the author of suffering, right? He wants, he never created suffering. Like suffering was not his idea, right? Um, but he uses the, 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 the sin in the world, he uses the suffering of the world, he uses the, the people in the world, he uses their actions in order to produce good. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the good things that comes from suffering is reminding us about God, to go back to God again. Hmm? One of the good things that comes out of suffering is that it reminds us of our need for God. Hmm? 
because we because we go astray, right? Like we we all. Well, the reason, okay, so the, the, the reason that we need him is not because he wants attention. The reason that we need him is because he is the source of life. So if we stray away from him, then we die. You know, like ultimately it's for us. It's not because he wants to be the center of attention. It's because without him, we perish, right? We are better off with him. We are joyful with him. We are, everything is, is, is at peace when we are with him. So he wants us to experience that. Okay. At the same time, I mean, I will say that, like, how do is how is it that we discipline our children, right? Like, let's say there's we discipline our children by giving them some kind of rebuke, some kind of discipline, some kind of punishment. Okay, you did this, so you're grounded. Okay, so that grounding is painful for the kids, but the hope is is that we are saving you from a worse fate if you don't learn this lesson, right? So, so as parents, when we ground our kids, we are not doing it because we hate our kids or because we enjoy seeing our kids upset. We are doing it because we want to protect them from something worse, right? And so it is worth it to, 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 to give them that. So even from the perspective of God allowing suffering, right? Because he, we could say, well, why don't God, why don't you just shield us from all suffering? I mean, he could. He could just say, oh, I'm not going to allow you to experience suffering, right? But... But that would be self-defeating, right? Because if we don't experience any kind of suffering and everything is going our way all the time, just based on our nature, we will very easily forget about God and go live a completely worldly life attached to the world and, and lose ourselves, right? So in every way, this idea of suffering is like tied together with, with salvation, you know? And that's not because God wants us to suffer. That's because of the nature of our sickness. Like by our very nature part of the corruption that happened in us is that the more things go well the more we begin to forget that we are actually weak that we are actually in need of god that god is the source of life that i am not sufficient of myself like you know you, you hear a lot of stories of like maybe people that like lived you know as atheists or lived in an, an arrogant way or, or whatever um and then only at the very last minute of their life when they're about to die they pray or they they ask for a priest or someone to pray with them or a bible or something like that like there's many stories where people only at that moment at that point there was actually um i don't know if you've you've heard of a book called orthodox afterlife so in this book there's a story it's, it's like recounting various like experiences that people have had that have died and then come back again and so um like the most famous story in that book there's this man who he says about himself that he lived completely apathetic to religion, to God, to anything. He just kind of lived to himself. And in that moment, when he, he's recounting his death, like because he, he experienced it, he said, how did he say? He said it's, it was like a feeling that absolutely everything that was important in the world is suddenly irrelevant. Like, like, like imagine, like, in some sense, like, it kind of what brought, what brought to my mind is like, like when you're in high school and you're graduating from high school and you suddenly realize that high school doesn't matter anymore. Like nothing that you nothing that you've done there matters anymore. You don't have anything to do there anymore. You're completely gone. Like when I think about my high school, it's like it's just a past memory. It's irrelevant now, right? To me. 
Of course, that's like a really like simplistic analogy, but the way he phrased it, you know, he, he suddenly it became such a reality to him that nothing he owned mattered. No relationship he had mattered. Everything that he was didn't matter. His career didn't matter. No accomplishment that he did ever mattered. He suddenly graduated from like that to something completely new where he's like, you know, he knows nothing about it. You know, it's like you're a freshman of, of the afterlife. So um, that feeling, you know, is we get that when we remember death, when we remember that life is temporary, when we remember eternity, when we remember God. So one of the ways that God wants us to remember that even while we are alive, without having to have a near-death experience, that even while we are alive to remember that what's happening here is just temporary and it's not the end all of everything is to is to make it uncomfortable to be here you know those feelings those moments where you kind of think to yourself you know heaven is much better than this i really would rather be in heaven those moments usually that come whenever we have some kind of suffering are at the, are at the same time therapeutic because they remind us that I sh i'm not really living for this life you know even if things aren't going the way that i want them to here I'm not really living for this life. There's something greater than this later on. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, verse 4. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is a very critical point. And any one of us who is called to serve another person which is all of us because even if you don't have like some official service in the church you are serving others around you you're serving your family your friends so on the only way that i can really bring comfort to anyone who is going through suffering is to comfort them with the comfort that i have already received from god right so we have to learn to accept this comfort from god if i do not feel comforted by god then there is no way I can comfort anyone. Because what? how am I going to comfort them? If I'm not comforted in myself, then I have no comfort to give, right? St. John Chrysostom, he says, He who is loving and is perpetually attached to God would not be harmed by the violent waves, however abundant they may be. But on the contrary, he would emerge out of them with a new strength. Whereas he who is weak and failing would often fall, even if there are nothing to bother him. That point is very interesting. You know, sometimes we feel depressed um, and sad for no reason. Like we just are not in a good mood, right? Whereas he who is weak and failing would often fall, even if there are nothing to bother him. The world is full of this spirit of despondency, of sadness, you know, you think of like someone like King Saul, who was so filled with this troubling spirit that he would have to have King David to come and to like, uh, uh, you know, play his musical instruments for him so that he would feel refreshed and comforted, right? As a, as a, as a world, the world is um, trying to find that peace somehow, right? Those broken cisterns that I spoke before, that even if there is nothing, you know, uh, to bother him, he still, you know, has that same feeling, right? We, we fall, even though there is nothing to bother. So 
The idea of receiving comfort from God is the comfort to be alive, is the comfort to be uh, really, really living, really living um, the way that God intended with joy and not with despondency and sadness all the time. That whatever maybe has happened to us, maybe in our past or in our present, that we're able to overcome it through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that I do not always feel a victim. That I always do not feel a victim of the world, a victim of others, a victim of my circumstances, a victim of whatever it is. Instead, I feel that even though, yes, I am experiencing suffering, I'm also experiencing a greater comfort that comes from God. And even these negative experiences that I have, the, the, like, the silver lining of it is that I'm experiencing God in them. The more I'm feeling like the, my weakness, the more I desire God, the more I feel God with, with, with me, the more my relationship with God is strengthened, the more I turn my eyes to the heavens instead of to the earth, right? So someone who um, is receiving their comfort from God is able to comfort others, okay? Um, St. Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa, he speaks about the idea that the comfort that we feel in the world is like a small taste of heaven. The comfort that we feel from God while we are in the world. He says, what is meant by the saying that the kingdom of God is inside us, but that the pleasure coming from high up to the souls by the spirit would be like an image, deposit, or a model of the eternal grace to be enjoyed by the saints in the life to come. God calls us by the work of the spirit for salvation through our sufferings to a fellowship with the goodness and the graces of the spirit. So when we experience the work of the Holy Spirit, when, when, when Christ says the kingdom of heaven is within you, what does that mean? It means that we are experiencing like that grace of God now as though we are experiencing like a slice of heaven now. We are experiencing some aspect of heaven, but even while we are still on the earth. And so we are able to comfort others because we are living in that constant state of comfort. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Right? How, how, do we, how do we really know who Christ is? Because the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Those people who are persecuted for their faith, they're the ones who understand Christ. They're the ones who understand. It's not just through activities like reading and listening to sermons and those things that are edifying to the mind, but it is through an experience. And that experience comes in all kinds of ways. Right? The experience of the world, applying what it is that we know about our faith to the real world experience and seeing God working in those experiences, that is what makes us to open our eyes and realize that what we are reading is more than just words, that it is, it is a description of the real life, our true relationship with God. And so this experience is greatly manifested during times of suffering because it's like suffering is like an amplifier. It amplifies our, our need it amplifies our desire to grow. It amplifies our desire to receive comfort from God and to draw closer to Him to pray and so on. Okay. Um, Saint Paul is one of the best examples of anyone in the Scripture who, even though he ex he experienced so much suffering, but he never once complained about any suffering. He, he never complained, and and actually he. He, he, he speaks about the benefits of suffering, right? Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, the physician does not only allow for us to go to cheerful parks and to enjoy good things, 
but he sometimes as well has to use on us the scalpel and the surgical knife. In both cases, he is the physician and the father sometimes treats his son with compassion and some other times he punishes and chastises him. In either case, he is a father. Knowing for sure that God is more compassionate than physicians and fathers, we should not question his treatment nor seek an account from him thereof, but whatever he finds good in his sight, let him do whether he relieves us from temptations or chastises us, because in either case, he intends to bring us back to the good path and to give us fellowship with him. He is aware of our needs, of what suit every one of us, and of the way we are to be saved. This is a beautiful, beautiful excerpt here from St. John Chrysostom. He's saying, the, the physician is the physician. Whether he uses a scalpel or he, or he, or he treats us in a way that feels like... Uh, nice, whether it is difficult or whether, whether it e is easy, whether a father hugs or whether a father uh, uh, punishes, in either case, he is the father, right? So the idea here is we should trust that God knows what we need. You know, when you lose the example of the physician, a lot of, a lot of the treatments that are necessary for various diseases are painful, you know, are painful. And there's a lot of side effects of them. Like look at like chemotherapy, for instance, right? No one would subject themselves to chemotherapy if they didn't believe that they had a cancer. No one would subject themselves to it if they didn't believe that it was a better option than um, if they didn't do it, right? So the physician, knowing what is our sickness and what is it that we need to be healed, might allow for these painful treatments. But the painful treatment is not a sign of the you know, the cruelty of the physician or the, or, or, or the negligence of the physician. No, actually, it's a sign of the love of the physician, right? But that love is not, uh, doesn't feel good necessarily, right? But it is good, right? For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds. Just as we are suffering in the world, right? And we suffer for Christ in the world, um, but our consolation in Christ also abounds. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So now St. Paul is saying what? When he's saying we, okay, we is referring to himself and the apostles, right? Those who are serving the people. If we are afflicted, it is for you. Everything that we experience is for you. Why do we go travel around the world? Why do we go preach? Why do we allow ourselves to be stoned? Why do we hunger? Why are we shipwrecked? Why, why all this stuff that happens to us? Because of love for you. That's the whole reason we do anything, right? If God allows us to suffer, it is for your benefit. And if God comforts, it, comforts us, it is again for your benefit, right? So, so there's, no, um, there's no selfishness at all in St. Paul's ministry. Absolutely everything is for his service, is for the love of the people. Whether he experiences joy because he sees them repenting, because he sees them progressing, because he sees that they are doing well, or whether he experiences pain because he sees that they are sinning and, and, and not learning, or whether he's experienced the suffering of simply his ministry and the traveling and how he's treated and so on, regardless of what he's experiencing, he's doing it for them. Everything is like offered as a sacrifice for them. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. 
Right, just as the people partake of St. Paul's sufferings for the faith, they will also partake of the consolation. So like when people are, um, when the people are like um, suffering with St. Paul, right? When people offer of themselves to help St. Paul in his ministry, right? They are suffering, but they are suffering and also will partake of the consolation that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in them, right? This is part of the work of the church, right? Part of the work of the church is to provide for those who are in need from from the church right that if there is someone who is lacking then the others they meet the need and the early church at this time you know the the people would sell all they have and give it to the church and the church would distribute it to the people it was seen as impossible that you would allow someone in the church to be in need and suffering while they could be uh while like let's say they had a monetary need while there are other people in the church that had money and they just didn't give it like that's not something that happened in the early church in the early church it was seen that that we are all together as one body and if one person suffers we all suffer with you right if you are in need then we all give you of what is ours as though you are one because you are one with us same with saint paul that the people would provide for him that the people would support his ministry because he is one of the body of Christ, and that his suffering was for their benefit. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. So St. Paul here doesn't speak about, he's speaking now about something that happened to him in the past. Okay, um, He's saying there is something that happened to us while we were in Asia, this is Asia Minor, um, where we were burdened without measure okay and we despaired even of life he, he doesn't um uh he doesn't speak specifically here uh specific situations but his sufferings were many and actually if you read in the book of acts the book of acts chronicles all kinds of suffering that saint paul and the other apostles experienced in their ministry he said yes we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in god who raises the dead right um even he has his own lesson, right? As St. Paul, we had the sentence of death. Like we were, we were close to death many times, right? But we don't trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Here, God raising the dead, like metaphorically, saying that even though we were like as good as dead because of all of the situations that we experienced where we were going to die, but God, he's, he's the one who is resurrected, raises the dead. He saved us, you know, from all of these bad situations. How can we trust in God, you know, unless we first stop trusting in ourselves how can we start trusting god more when all of our trust is in ourselves you know um sometimes when we are put in situation with a difficult circumstance uh we think of all the possible things that we can do to solve it to help ourselves which is fine but sometimes we only turn to god as a last resort when absolutely everything else has failed Maybe one of the reasons that God allows us to experience those kinds of things where everything else has failed is because without that, we wouldn't turn to him. You know, how do we really cope with something when there is no one that can solve our problem? We just turn to God and say, God, help me with this problem. This is beyond my, my power. This is beyond my ability. Right. So so this is part of what we learn as believers is how do we surrender our will to God? How do we surrender um, our, our life so that whatever path of life God takes us? We accept it, and we accept it with joy, knowing that he is the great physician. He is the father who leads us to where it is good, that we should not be afraid. Who delivered us from so great a death, 
and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, right? God is the one who raises for the dead, and he solves the problem of death, right? The problem, the ultimate problem that of, of every human being, the ultimate problem that every single human being experiences is death, and there is no escape from it. But God, in his love for mankind, solved the problem of death. So when you look at it from that perspective, every other problem that exists in the world cannot compare to this problem of death. The idea that of, of death and eternal separation from God. That problem that mankind lived with for thousands of years, God fixed it. God resolved it. And God found the solution for it. And he made it so that death no longer has any power. So he is the one who raises from the dead. This should be our hope. That even if we live in this life with some kinds of suffering, but ultimately our greatest hope is eternal life with God in which there is no more suffering and there is no more pain, right? So even if we don't necessarily find the solution or that whatever problem that we experience in the world is solved, but we know that there is ultimately a solution in heaven where we will no longer suffer. Um, this is a good stopping point here. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Okay. Glory be to God for every minute. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, O oh God, for your blessing. We ask, O oh God, to help us to see you as a source of comfort in our lives that despite all of the challenges that we experience, despite the problems, despite the things, O oh Lord, that are beyond our control, and even those things, O oh Lord, that we brought about by our own poor choices, we ask, O oh God, that you relieve us and you grant us comfort and you give us a pathway and a way forward. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to continue to trust in you, how to not fall into despair or sorrow, but to see you, O oh Lord, always ever before us as a source of comfort, walking with us day by day. Grant us, O oh Lord, your peace, and grant us, O oh God, a purpose and an identity and a, and a reason for life. To continue, O oh Lord, according to your will, to let everything be done according to your will and according to your time. Teach us, O oh God, how to be loving to one another, to be forgiving, to be kind, to be merciful. Teach us, O oh God, how to not hate one another or to backbite or to mock or insult. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to be a light that shines in the darkness so that those, O oh Lord, on the outside may see and turn to you for salvation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.